0: Name of Jesus, that we as your church together say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Where do you go when and if uh, you sense that there is a distance between you and God that needs to be bridged, a gap that, that needs to be crossed, and a connection? that needs to be made. Sooner or later, many people, I I dare say probably most people have that thought, uh, what they do with it varies from person to person, but but most people eventually come to that kind of a a decision, either sooner in life or much later. Um, Perhaps that's you. For many people, they spend a decent chunk of their lives and, and perhaps even most of their lives or a portion of their lives totally apart from God, from church, from anything that has to do with religion. And then oftentimes, something somewhere along the way makes a person realize, man, maybe I need to get God figured out. Now, there's as many circumstances that can lead a person to that, um, that realization as there are people, but often the realization is the same. I need, to, I need to get square with God. I need to learn about who God is. Where do you go when that happens? Or perhaps uh, you're actually a fairly committed Christian, regular churchgoer, uh, consistent reader of your Bible, and so forth. But if you are, and if you have been for some time, you can probably relate to an experience we have all had. Uh, We tend to call it backsliding. That's church language for saying, like, I I do Jesus really well for a while, but then I just kind of get caught up in myself For a while. And even though I'm still going to church, like God is not the most important thing to me. And eventually I realize it, and I realize how far off track my life has gone. And I realize I gotta gotta repent all over again. I gotta get back with my Lord. I gotta put him back in his rightful place where he belongs on the throne of my life. When you come to that realization, where do you start? Where do you go to meet God? Where do you go? To get into God's presence, if you know that you're not in the center of God's presence. That's what we're going to look at this morning as we open God's Word together. This series that we're in over the summer is a series on the names and titles that are used of God throughout the Bible. Uh, We're going to look throughout this summer at 11 of the most common or prominent names or titles of God that the Bible uses for Him. Each name of God says something different about who He is. And so that leads us to four really important questions that we're trying to answer every Sunday. Different name each Sunday, different passages of Scripture, but we've got one common goal. Once we've seen a name of God and what it says about Him, we want to know, first of all, what does it mean? What is the name? Where is it in the Bible? Secondly, what does that say about the character of God? Who is he? What's he like? Thirdly, what does that mean about how we relate to him and how he relates to us? And lastly, how does that point to the gospel of Jesus as everything in the Bible ultimately does? That's where we've been this summer. That's where we're going to continue this morning. And the name we're looking at this morning is uh, the Hebrew name Yahweh Shammah. Yahweh Shema, and it means the Lord is there. This is a title that the uh, Old Testament uses quite prominently, and we're going to look at that this morning. Now, I actually have to confess, even as we've already kind of answered the first question, what's the name and what's it mean, that actually this is technically not... I'm cheating a little bit this morning. Of all of the 11 names of God we're looking at, this is the one that's not actually a name of God. Technically, and that's why I assigned this particular topic to myself because I'm responsible for this series, so I should clean up my own mess. Um, This is not actually a name of God, this is a name that in the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, the Bible applies to the city that, that Ezekiel sees in a prophetic vision. It's essentially a vision of heaven. God says, at the end of all time, I'm going to be together with my people. And, and, and he gets this picture of that as, as kind of this a city. And the book of Ezekiel ends, we'll get there in just a moment, by saying, the city shall be called Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. So if it's not a name of God, but rather the name of a uh, city in a vision, why are we looking at it in a series about the names of God? Well, because... It actually says a great deal about who God is, and it parallels closely with a number of other names of God, the most prominent of which that we know and we hear every Christmas season is the name Emmanuel, another Old Testament name of God. So if you're a stickler for things fitting in their perfect boxes and you don't feel good about the fact that there's a name that's not of God in the Names of God series, then in your mind you can say, this morning's name was Emmanuel, which is a name of God in the Bible, and everything's fine, okay? It's the same essential idea. Emmanuel, an Old Testament prophetic name, it's a Hebrew word that means God with us, and that name was applied to Jesus, God when he was born in human flesh. Now, the point of this is to say that from the Old Testament prophets through the birth of Jesus and all the way through the New Testament, there is a major biblical theme going on here. And if you want to understand the Bible, and if, more importantly, you want to understand the God who is revealing himself, in the Bible. You've got to grasp this theme. This is an essential aspect of what the Bible is saying about who God is. And the major theme that we're talking about is the theme of God's presence. God's presence. And to be a little bit more specific, the fact that we want to be in God's presence, we desperately need to be in God's presence as people. And we ultimately kind of know this, especially in our times of need. It's almost human reflex, whether it's an athlete uh, praying before they step out onto the field or the court or the track, or perhaps it's the desperation prayer launched heavenward as we pass through the door into that job interview. Or maybe it is the silent, heavy um, prayer that is desperately lifted to the ceiling in the waiting room as we await our appointment for the doctor to receive those test results or that diagnosis. We all feel the need, sooner or later, to know that I'm with God and God is with me. I need Him. The Bible says it's absolutely right. We need Him. So the question is, where is He? And are we with Him? And how do we get with Him? And how do we know that He is with us? This is actually one of the major issues that the Bible is trying to talk to us about so that's what the name means we're going to answer these remaining three questions what does it say about god what does it say about how we relate to him and what does it say about the gospel we're going to answer all three of those by by kind of taking a hyper fast thirty five thousand foot tour of this theme throughout the bible to show you the key parts where it crops up in the process we're going to see how the bible develops the theme and more importantly what it's telling us about who god is and how we relate to him And the story naturally starts in Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, the first few chapters. There we've got uh, God creating Adam and Eve. He puts them in the Garden of Eden, a paradise. And it is paradise, not just because there were like crystal clear Caribbean oceans and palm trees and warm summer sunshine, Although I'm sure to some extent all of that was true. It was probably a luxurious and comfortable and wonderful, beautiful place to live. But the heart of what made Eden paradise is the fact that the Lord was there. This was a place where Adam and Eve didn't just live with one another and live in a very comfortable surrounding that was custom made for them and met all of their needs. This was a place where they walked with God. They talked with God. They related with God face-to-face, as it were, up close, intimately, personally. And from the very earliest pages of the Scripture, the Bible tells us that that is what we were made for, to relate personally for God. That's what made it perfect. Because the very thing we were made for, the thing we desperately need the most, the presence of God was right there. That's what made Eden paradise. The Lord was there. But... If you're familiar with the story, you know that that Edenic paradise, that Eden paradise, didn't last very long. By the third chapter of the Bible, the Bible story has barely gotten off the ground. The wheels have just left the runway, and it takes a crash and burn. Adam and Eve are tempted to sin, they sin, and paradise is lost when they are significantly evicted from the Garden of Eden. They are literally kicked out. They're sent off to the east And the Bible says there's now a barrier between them and the presence of God. They can no longer get back to Eden. They can no longer get back to the tree of life. They can no longer get back to where God is. They are no longer in God's presence. We are, as a human race, the Bible is telling us, cut off from God because of our sin. We're now outside his presence. And that is the source, by definition, of pain and suffering and death. Now, from here on out, reconciliation becomes one of the major themes that drives the Bible's message. That's that's our our sort of conundrum, right? That's our issue. How can sinful people get back to where God is when we're sinful and he's holy and there's this barrier between us and him because of our sin? How's that going to happen? Can that happen? And if so, how's it work? Friends, whatever else can be said of my life. the challenges I face, the sins I've committed, the choices I've made, whatever else can be said of my life, the biggest problem that I have and the biggest problem that you have, according to the Bible, is that I am cut off from God's presence. That's the root of my problem. That's really the definition of my problem. And the Bible says it's a definition of yours too. We are cut off from God's presence. That's the problem that so desperately needs fixing. So what does all of this begin to say about God and about who he is? Well, it tells us something very important, kind of two sides to the coin that are already starting to become clear from the perspective of the Bible. Whoops, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here we are. Only God's presence can sustain us and satisfy us. That's the picture that the Bible's painting. Only God's presence can sustain us, that is, meet every need that we have, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, every need that we have. The Bible says every need that we've got was designed to be met by God, meaning that only God can ultimately meet those needs. Only God's presence can sustain us, and only God's presence can satisfy us not just the the sort of raw meeting of a need, but actually delightful meeting of a need to delight the human heart, to satisfy us deeply and fill a life with pleasure and joy because we have everything that we could need and more. Where do you get that? Where do you find that? The Bible's very clear. One place and one place only when you are in the presence of God. What does it say about God? It says He is the ultimate and only one who can satisfy and sustain the human heart. And the reverse of that is true as well. If you flip that coin over, that means there is no such thing as sustenance or satisfaction apart from God's presence. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist according to the Bible. Well, sure, there are lots of counterfeits that vie for that place in our life. Lots of things and people in the world promise to satisfy if only we will pursue them. But they don't really meet the need. Not really, not ultimately, not in the end. The nature of sin, though, is that it blinds us to the unique beauty of God. As we look at lesser pleasures and think they'll bring us ultimate satisfaction, and we look at God and we say, eh, no thanks. No thanks. Or maybe, okay, I'll take a little of God, but I want a bunch of other stuff too, and i got to keep him at arm's length. This becomes the story of the Bible as it continues to unfold. That was the problem of Adam and Eve. They believed the serpent's lie, the temptation, that, yeah, you know, as good as you have it with God, God is actually holding out on you. There's something else outside of God's presence, if you just go away from God and disobey God and come out from under God's authority and God's way of living, you'll find something that's even better than what you have with God. And they bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. They fell for the lie. There is no satisfaction of the soul apart from the presence of God, but our hearts don't believe that even if our heads do. And we're going to see that unfold throughout the Bible as we move on. Well, God's people are evicted from his presence, but the story picks up and it carries on, and God is constantly seen as one who pursues unworthy people. We've rejected him, but he keeps moving toward us. He keeps moving toward us. In the book of Exodus, God saves his people from slavery in Egypt through the miracles of the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. He sustains his people in the barren wilderness by miraculously providing manna, this bread from heaven every morning. He just gives them what they need. And he's ultimately leading them to the place of ultimate joy and rest, the promised land through a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. And in all of this, the ancient Israelites could say, how do we know God is with us? How do we know that that we're in his presence? Well, they knew they were in his presence because they saw the cloud and they saw the fire. God is there. He's in the miracles. They saw the manna every morning. God is with us, and we know that because we're seeing his miracles. Unfortunately, that wasn't really enough to change their hearts or fix their sin problem because before they got to the promised land, God wants to bring them to a place where they were having an up-close and personal encounter with him at Mount Sinai. And he says, before I get you to the place of sustenance, you need to find your ultimate joy in me. And so he says, I want you to come right up close to me On this mountain, I'm going to thunder, you're going to hear my voice, but I want to talk to you face-to-face, and I want you to hear my voice so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Kind of sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Face-to-face communication, you're my people, I'm your God, but it wasn't to be. They got right to the place, God came down on the mountain, and the people refused to go be close to him. The Bible puts it this way in Exodus chapter 20 verses 18 to 21, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off because at this point, God's presence didn't look very inviting and it didn't look very promising. It looked like something they would be better without than something they would be better with. And so they said to Moses, you go speak to God. You go up on that mountain and die. We ain't going there. Nice folks. (laughs) But they were afraid and they trembled. You go stand up there, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, don't fear. God has come to test you so that the fear of him will always be before you that you may not sin. He wants you to understand who he is so you're not tempted to turn your back on him and run away like Adam and Eve did. But but he's not gonna eat you alive on this mountain. He's a good God. He's already delivered you. He's already saved you. He's already proven it. So just trust him and go up close to him. But the people stood far off. And so Moses went up Alone. You see, ultimately, the problem that they had was the problem of fear. They repeated the sin of Adam and Eve by choosing to rely on what they saw and felt rather than on what God had said and demonstrated in terms of his faithful character. I will provide for you and I will protect you. Just come close to me. They said, We like to provide, we like to protect. Uh, That close thing, not real excited about that. So no, God, we won't. God is moving toward them and they're backing off. Because God's presence is ultimately not something that they really want. They're convinced it's not good. The problem is that they ultimately wanted the benefits of God's presence without God's presence. God, can you protect us and provide for us and sustain us? Can you meet our needs and delight our hearts? Just don't get so darn close. Because at some level you're kind of scary and I'm not sure I can really feel like I can trust you or like you or am comfortable around you. I'm not seeing you as the most true and beautiful thing in the world. I'm seeing you as kind of scary. So you stay far off, but the more of that sustain and and, and delight kind of sustain and satisfy stuff you want to give me, the better. We'll happily take the benefits of your presence, but we don't want your presence. We do this all the time, don't we? It's easy to look back and say, man, if I had seen and witnessed and experienced those physical miracles the way they had, I would trust God in a heartbeat. What was wrong with them? But the truth is, it's a human nature issue. It's a sin nature issue is the Bible's term for it. We believe that if I make it big in my career, I will be satisfied. If I can finally have a family, if I can get married and meet the right person, I won't be so lonely anymore. If I could unmeet the bad person I'm married to and meet somebody else, then I will be happy. If we can have children, we will have a rich family life. If we can have grandchildren, then we will be happy if I can achieve this goal or, or pursue this dream and this travel or just have raw hedonistic pleasure and entertainment, if I can do things that are fun and exciting as much as possible, if I fill my life with good things, my heart will be satisfied. Even if we know in our heads that that's not really true, the heart believes it. The heart believes it. In fact, most people, if you ask them straight out, hey, do you think money can buy happiness? Do you really think that if you got more rich, all your problems would go away and you'd be happy? I bet virtually everybody you talk to would say, no, that's not true. That's not true. It might make life more pleasant and more secure, but but they know that, no, I can't buy happiness. And they probably, when they say that, mostly at least mean it. Like they they actually believe that that's, that's true. Money can't buy happiness. We know that in our heads. But then why is it that we're such a materialistic, money-seeking, hedonistic society? Because the heart doesn't always listen to the head. It usually goes the other way around. Something else within me, beyond my rational thought process, yearns for those things because I believe that that's what will satisfy. So the heart reaches for them and pursues them. That's the issue that the Israelites were facing back then. By the way, Christians do this all the time too, of course. It's a human nature problem. In fact, sometimes it's a little more dangerous as Christians because it's easy to put a thin veneer of Christian talk over my pursuit of what are essentially worldly things. You know, I can call them God's blessings, and that makes it all okay, right? I've got a wonderful career. I make a lot of money. I enjoy that money, and it's all God's blessings. So that means that I'm loving God and serving Him, not my money. Maybe. Automatically? I'm not so sure. Jesus had a lot to say about the dangers of money and how it pulls on the heart. He said a lot more about that than he did a lot of other topics. And money is just one example. It is so easy for the heart to start to pursue lesser things than God, believing that we will find satisfaction there, even when we know in our heads that that's not true. That's what the Israelites were doing. And this brings us up, by the way, right up against our third question. We've already seen what this name means and this, this theme of God's presence and, and how our, what it says about God that only our joy can be found there and nowhere else. So what about this third question? What does that mean about the way that we relate to God and God relates to us? Well, you see constantly throughout Scripture that our sin drives us away from God's presence. Our sin drives us away from the one thing we want and need most. Why? Why would we Why would we do that? Why would the one thing that we want and need the most when it's right in front of us, when it's moving toward us, that is he is moving toward us, why would we turn and run the other direction? Because our heart becomes enamored with lesser things. We'll be happy if we have these things. That's what the heart believes that was the problem of the israelites wanting the peace and the comfort and the security and wealth from god rather than god himself despite this god continues to show himself as one who moves toward his people they rejected him at sinai so what's going to happen now so he's like that's it i'm done i've given you guys your second chance it's over no he continues to pursue them even though they continue to reject him as the old testament narrative goes on he gives them the ark of the covenant uh, it was a, a, a coffer, essentially an ornate box that they stored the Ten Commandments in. And he gives them the plans for the tabernacle or the temple. And that's the building where they, the ark is going to be uh, kept. And it is there with, with the ark, the box, and, and the building, the innermost sancti- sanctified room of the temple where the box dwelt, that God said, there is my presence. That was the way it worked in the Old Testament. He said, fine, you're keeping me at arm's length, then I will continue to move toward you, but we're going to be at arm's length. My presence will be with the ark inside the temple, but you guys can't go into it. You can just be near it. So you're close to my presence, but you're not actually in my presence, because you're sinful, and if you come by my presence, you're going to die. And so God mercifully gives them an arm's length way that his presence can still be with them. And so as time goes on, the Israelites build this temple under King Solomon, and they've got the ark of the covenant inside it, and they go, how do we know that God is with us now? Now? Our ancestors saw this pillar of fire and cloud, and they had this manna bread coming down from heaven. Well, that stopped after a while. That's not been true for us. So how do we know God's presence for us, uh, is is with us, that God is for us? And you know what the answer was? We look up on that hill, and there's the temple. And we know that inside that temple is the ark, the box with the Ten Commandments. And God says, my presence is going to be in the temple with the ark. So if we want to know that God is with us, we look to the temple. God is in the building. Because the building is there, God's presence is with us, and if we want to be God's people, we got to be with and in and participating in the religious worship of the temple. So they knew God was with them because they had the building and the box. But unfortunately, that didn't keep them from sinning. As the Old Testament goes on, you get example after example of the people continuing to follow other gods, pursue hedonistic sinful pleasures, all sorts of idolatry. They're turning their back on God constantly. As a result, God causes the division of their nation. He causes their conquest. They get conquered by uh, outside forces. And ultimately, they are shipped off in exile as slaves, which was fairly common back then when one nation conquered another. They would kill all the people who could fight back, and they would take the rest of them and take them back to their homeland and kind of make them slaves. And by this point in the Old Testament, this is an utter disaster. Before, it's, it's the undoing of everything that God had done before. Back in Egypt, the Israelites weren't even a, a real nation. They were a people group, but they were slaves. And God freed them from slavery and He made them a nation. And then He took them to the promised land and He gave them a place to live. And He gave them the temple and the ark so that they would know His presence was with them. And now they've been conquered. And so the temple is absolutely destroyed. It, it's raised down to the foundations, it's gone. The ark of the covenant vanishes. It's probably hauled off in plunder and melted down for scrap because it had a lot of gold and stuff on it. It vanishes from history. Nobody ever sees it again. The ark is gone. The people aren't a nation anymore. Their kingdoms and their government has been toppled. And they're not even in the promised land anymore. They've been hauled off into exile. Everything that would have said to them, God is with us, has been systematically undone. It looks as if God is no longer with his people and they're finally being judged by him. And yet, that brings us to Ezekiel. The sort of focal point passage of our name this morning. During that time of exile, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel gets this vision from God. God says, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to bring my people back together. I'm going to make this happen. They're going to be together. They're going to be in my presence. Very Garden of Eden-like language. You keep hearing echoes of this over and over in the Bible. They're going to be together. They're going to be in my presence, and it's going to be forever. And I'm going to actually change their hearts so that they don't turn their backs on me the way they've continually turned their backs on me all the way since the literal Eden. And that's why they're going to be with me and it's going to be good. My people will be in my presence. And so at the end of the book of Ezekiel, he gets this vision of this city where God is to be worshipped with all of his people. And the book of Ezekiel ends with these words, the name of the city from that time on forever shall be Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. The Lord is there in the city with his people. Now, to an Old Testament Israelite, that made sense because they had had a city before, Jerusalem, with a temple in it, and that's how they knew God's presence was there, because of the temple. And yet, there's something more going on here because the city in Ezekiel's vision is crazy. It's nothing like a literal city or the literal Jerusalem. And that leads us right up to the plot twist in the Bible, which is our fourth and final question. How does all of this talk of God's presence relate to the gospel? What does it have to do with Jesus, friends? It has everything to do with Jesus, because for the next four hundred or so years, God says nothing. His people are living largely in exile. It doesn't look like God is with them until Jesus is born, God in human flesh. And the Bible's very clear that His name is to be called, what the Old Testament prophets foretold, Emmanuel, which means God with us. What are you talking about? God hasn't been with us for centuries. We got no building. We got no box. How can you say God is with us? We got no land. We're conquered. We're in exile. How can you say God is with us? God is with us, but this time it's not in a building. It's not in a box. It's not in a set of laws or religious rules or rituals that you're supposed to follow, and if you do those things, then you can know God is with you. Before they had a temple, they had a box, they had a Ten Commandments. All that stuff is gone now. Now God is with us in a person. He's with us in a person. He has come to us himself in human form. That's right. That's worth an amen or two. You can get a little charismatic here this morning. This is worth it, okay? We can handle it. And Jesus makes sure that we don't miss the point of this at all. In John chapter 2, verse 21, uh, he's still kind of echoing some of the Old Testament imagery of the temple, and he says this, the Jews said to him, uh, that is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, "Uh, what sign do you show for doing these things? Jesus is running around, performing miracles, claiming to be somebody special, you know, because he is, but they don't believe him, and so they're kind of challenging him on it, and they're like, what sign do you give to show us that you're really more than just another guy? And here's Jesus' answer. He says, destroyed uh, John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, at the time he said that, Herod's temple was standing in Jerusalem. They were probably standing in the shadow of the very temple building itself. It was a massive building. It was virtually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, it was ornate, it was large, it was more grand and glorious than any Jewish temple had ever been throughout history by several orders of magnitude. It was a massive undertaking, a huge building covered in gold, glinting in the sun. It was a dazzling spectacle to the first century eye, a temple built ostensibly to the glory of God. Jesus says, tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll build it back up. They're looking at him going, dude's got a screw loose. What are you talking about? Their answer, it took 40, it has taken 46 years. By the way, at this point, the temple building was finished, but the temple complex was still under construction. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. They didn't exactly have cranes and bulldozers back then, so it took a while. Are you going to raise it up in three days? You're insane. But, verse 21, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Do you see what the Bible is doing? It's going back to this theme of the presence of God, always pictured in the temple, but now the temple is no longer there. It's no longer in the presence of God. It's now in a person. Here's the plot twist. The presence of God has shifted. The central place of God's presence is no longer a building. It's a person. And so therefore, when Jesus was raised from the dead, after, ooh, how many days? Three? His disciples, the Bible says, remembered what he said, and they believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken. And we could continue on through the New Testament for the sake of time. We'll just jump straight to the end. In Revelation chapter 21, we just finished studying this book as a church. And if you were with us a couple of months ago when we preached through this passage, you may recall that the Apostle John gets a vision of a heavenly city, just like the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel did. Everything in these last couple chapters of the Bible is anchored in the last several chapters of the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. John's vision is an updated version of Ezekiel's vision. What was Ezekiel's vision? A future city where the people of God would be there together with God, and the Lord is there. And what happens in Revelation? The apostle John gets a vision of a city, and here's what it says, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You see this presence of God thing over and over again. Where is God's presence? How do we get to it? Well, now it's come to us. That's heaven. That's heaven. The presence of God is with us. And it goes on in verse uh, 22. It says, I saw no temple in the city. I saw no temple building in this prophetic vision he had of a city. There was no separate temple where God dwelt apart from everything else in the city. Why? Because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the Lamb, in the book of Revelation, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and greater temple. It is the presence of God. You want to know where that's found? It is found in a person. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? We just covered a lot of ground at a really high level. But let's take this down to our real implications and experience because that's what the Bible wants us to do with it. It's telling us all this not just to inform our minds but to transform our lives. If we're following what God is getting at here and how we relate to Him and how He relates to us and what that has to do with the gospel, what do you do with it? Jesus consistently held Himself up as the way to be in the presence of God. His presence is not in a building. It's not in a box. It's not in a religious lifestyle. If you, if you do enough of the right things, then God will bless you and you will be in his presence. He says, The presence of God is me. I am God in human flesh. I am the one who mediates the presence of God to sinful humanity. You want to be in God's presence, you come to me. He said, There's so many ways. He said, I am the door. In the context, that's a, a, a gate in a, in a sheep pen. That's a shepherding term. And the sheep need to get out of the pen and go out to where there's green grass so that they can eat. And there's only one way out because the walls keep them in at night. They keep them safe from wolves. But there's only then one way for the sheep to get out to where the green pasture is where they need to live. There's one door in the, in the, in the wall. Jesus says, I'm like that door. You're sitting here penned in by your sin and I'm the only way to the green pasture that will sustain and satisfy your soul. Elsewhere, John chapter 4, he said, I am living water such that if you drink the water that I have to offer, you will never thirst again. Do you hear the language of sustenance and satisfaction? The meeting of needs and the delighting of the heart, like a cold drink and a hot summer's day? He says, that's me. And in John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. And he said that in a time and a place when bread was the primary staple food that people had to live on. You need bread to live. It it satisfies your hunger, which is a pleasurable experience, but it's also a life-giving experience. It meets your need and delights the heart. He says, you know, I'm the bread of life. If you eat of my bread, you will never hunger again. God's presence isn't a building that we go to. It's not in a building that we go to. It's not in a lifestyle that we embrace. It's actually found in a person. And it's not somebody that we go to. It is somebody who has already come to us. The problem is that we still face humanity's perpetual problem. We talked about this earlier. The heart looks at God and doesn't see him as the ultimate source of our satisfaction. Even when we're pursuing God, we're often pursuing Him at kind of arm's length. I want to get closer to God, but too close is a little bit scary. What, you mean I have to give up my whole life? I'm not sure that sounds like a great idea to me. I would just appreciate a little bit of blessing, a little bit of security, a little bit of help. I'm not sure I want to surrender the driver's seat. That's a lot scarier. The Old Testament, one of my favorite prophetic verses in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2, verse 13, God describes this problem with his people. We've already seen how they were constantly, he was moving toward him and they were turning back. At one point he says, my people have committed two great evils. They've turned their backs on me, the fountain of living water. That's where Jesus got the term in the New Testament, by the way. In the Old Testament, God called himself the fountain of living waters. I'm the source of what you need. I can satisfy your soul and delight your heart. You were made for me, and here I am right here, but my people turn around and run away. That's the first sin. Second sin, they create their own little basins to try to hold their own water to satisfy their souls apart from me. They hew cisterns, he says. That was like bowls or or dishes that you would carve out of the rock to hold your water back then. But he says the problem is they're all broken. They're cracked. They don't hold water, at least not for very long. You can dump a little bit of water in there, but if you try to live on that forever, it always seeps out, and it's always leaving you dry. And God calls that sin. My people are turning their backs on the source of living water, unending source, which is me, and they're trying to go find satisfaction on their own in their jobs in their careers, in their families, in sex, in relationships, in money, in religious activity, all of which is designed often to make us feel good about who we are. And it leads us to turn our backs on God and make much of ourselves and less of Him. And He says, you're missing the source of life. Until the heart is deeply convinced that life can only be found in Christ... Salvation does not come to full maturity in a person's life. That's what the Bible's driving at. Until the heart is deeply convinced that life is only found in Christ, salvation does not flourish i got to tell you, I've spent a lot of time this week um, with a broken heart praying over this, not only because of this bent in my own life. (laughs) I can preach it from the Bible and describe it, but I can see it operating here too. How many times I pursue security of, how's my retirement account doing? Am I getting enough of my me time and my pleasure and what I need? And so often my thoughts are there. They're not in like, how much more of God do I need? I can see this operating in my own life. But you know what, as a pastor, I've seen it writ large in the lives of so many people, so many people. I just had occasion these last couple weeks to think of several people by name, and, and these stories are repeated in the congregations of every church that I'm aware of. We have our, our own. People who have come to church looking for God. And we started this morning by saying, when you need to get in God's presence, where do you go? The first logical answer for a lot of people is, let me go to church. And actually, at one level, that's, that's a very wise and sensible thing to do. Except, as we've already seen, you don't find God in a building. And so if you come to church expecting that being in church is going to make you encounter God in and of itself, you're destined for disappointment. But so often that's not clear. As churches, the best thing we can do is open up the Bible and explain it. We're like punching in an address on, on your Navigator app or Google Maps or something, and saying, like, you want God? Here's the path. We can show it to you. Clearly, that's where you need to go. Oh, by the way, and avoid this because there's a nasty sin traffic jam there. You don't want to go there. Go around. This is where you get to God. And by the way, that's a huge service. That's a wonderful, wonderful tool to have, a clear roadmap to God. But the church provides the roadmap. The church doesn't convey the presence of God in the building. So often, people have come, and they thought they were trying to, God. Many times with sincerity. They felt a need for God and they came here and they found people who looked like they loved God. And so they looked around and they start doing the things that Christians seem to do. Uh, They attend worship services regularly because that's what Christians do. You come to church on Sunday morning, so I'm here every Sunday. They Christians sing songs and so they learn the songs and they start singing the songs right along with everybody else. Christians get baptized, so they get baptized. Christians receive communion, as we do here at Harvest, twice every month. So they begin to receive communion. Christians join small group Bible studies, so they'll join a small group and they'll start attending. They'll volunteer in the church. Maybe some of them even get to the place where they give money to support the ministry of the church this is a church, we don't sell things for a profit. Our members joyfully give to God financially and that sustains the ministry of the church. And so some people figure that's, that's what people are doing, that's what I'm gonna do. And the list goes on and on and on. And they get engaged with so much of the life of the church, hoping that by doing that, they will experience what they assume everybody else around them is experiencing, somehow the presence of God in their lives. But for the people I'm thinking of, they're never satisfied never satisfied the aches and pains of the heart that drove them here in the first place continue unabated and eventually sometimes it takes a while but eventually the person kind of drops off the face of the earth it looks real sudden from everybody else's perspective we're so and so they were so engaged they seemed so happy to be here they were so excited for so long and then all of a sudden they're just gone And it's not like they went to some other church. They're just like gone. And people start calling them and texting them. And and they're kind of evasive. And like, yeah, no, thanks. That's just, no, I'm just moving on. I just don't want to talk to anybody. I'm I'm out. I got to tell you, my heart breaks. Because so often what I fear has happened, whatever else is going on there, what I fear has happened is that a person has made the mistake of believing that they could find God in the building or in the lifestyle of a Christian. Not in the person of Christ. But it doesn't work that way. It's never worked that way. God has never been able to be uh, connected with in a building or a box or a set of religious rules. It's always been the person of God. Jesus is never a means to an end. But friends, until our hearts become desperately convinced and deeply convinced... That our strongest, such that our strongest internal motivation is to get close to Christ, until that happens, we will be missing the gospel. We'll be missing the point of the whole Bible's message. And at this point, I run up against my absolute and total inadequacy as a pastor. Because I have no ability to convince anybody in their heart that Jesus is the most true and beautiful thing in the world. Because honestly, I can't even convince myself. I can't make my own heart long for Jesus as much as I should. I definitely realize I don't have the power to make any of yours. I so wish I could take every man and woman in this room and show you Jesus for who he really is and put myself in that line and show myself Jesus for who he really is. We would be transformed. We would never be the same. Many of you have had that experience. I fear many have not. But church can't fix it. A pastor can't fix it. We can explain it. We can exposit it from scripture. I can show you what a person's life looks like when it happens. But the danger is then we just start imitating that life and we miss the Jesus. So if we're in that conundrum, what do we do? (laughs) What do you do when you realize doing stuff doesn't work? (laughs) I'm not 100% sure. But I'm pretty sure, and I want to close with two things that are things you do without really doing them, okay? This will make sense in a minute, (laughs) I hope. I'm pretty sure these are biblical. First, if you want to convince your heart, if you want to train your heart to long for the truth and the beauty of something, two things help. First of all, you have to expose yourself to it. You have to expose yourself to it. And this is where reading the Bible, coming to church, can actually be a real help. You've got to get into the Bible yourself, too, but, but hearing other people talk about it and explain it so that you can understand what's going on and, and you, you form relationships with people who are experiencing the transformation of Jesus in their lives, all of that is really helpful. I mean, put it this way. Um, I'm a person who, like, I mean, everybody loves some kind of art. For me, the art that I've always loved and resonated with is music. I have a lot of experience and background with music, so I understand music. I really enjoy lots of different kinds of music. You don't have to convince me to get excited about certain kinds of music. Um, I don't get visual art. Just going to own it and be honest with you. Like, paintings, sculptures, they don't do anything for me. I've looked at pictures of some of the incredible masterpieces and about all I can do is admire the technical genius behind it. I'm like, man, I could never do that. So like a person who is able to paint that thing with a paintbrush is amazing to me. I can admire the skill, but there's so much more to the art and somebody who knows how to appreciate it sees so much more than just the skill of the artist. And I don't get that. So if I, wanted to, if I wanted to become somebody who could appreciate true masterwork paintings, probably a good place to start would be an art museum, don't you think? <laughs> Maybe reading some books about art or art history, learning about it, going to museums, looking at the things, exposing myself to them. I'm probably not going to learn to love paintings just by thinking about paintings. I need to expose myself to it. That's, that's the first part of this. It's but here's the thing, that, that doesn't automatically work. I mean, I could, I could make it a point to go to an art museum for two hours a week, every week for the next year, and expose myself to art. And you'd be saying, man, that mad guy loves art. He's going to the museum like every Friday, like clockwork. He just loves art. And I'm going there every Friday, and I'm bored out of my skull. <laughs> and I'm just sitting, and I'm staring, and I'm waiting for something to happen. And it's like... I probably have to do that, but just doing that doesn't make it, doesn't make my heart change. You see the difference? It, it's a lot like plowing a field. If the field's not plowed, nothing's going to grow. But you plow the field and, and crops don't magically sprout up. There still has to be something planted, which leads us to the second thing. And that is, I would simply suggest that you pray like a madman or madwoman. Pray for God. The Bible's language for it is, open the eyes of your heart. In other words, another way the Bible says that, that's the positive. The negative is to remove spiritual blindness. It's all different ways of saying the same thing. Our hearts don't see God for who they are, and ultimately God himself is the only one who can help us to see him for the truth and beauty that he is, because our hearts are not neutral. They are bent to not see God for who he is. So how do I come to see him differently? You pray like a madman or a madwoman. If you don't know how to pray or where to pray, I would suggest beginning where I want to close this morning, and that is with the prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. This is a prayer the Apostle Paul prayed for a bunch of Christians, interestingly. There are people that had already given their lives to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and yet he prays that they would truly understand, not just in their heads but also in the heart, the beauty of the salvation they've been given. Listen to this, what he says, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, I pray that the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that you would really understand it. That's what he's saying. The salvation you have, the gospel you've responded to, you don't fully get it yet. I'm praying you will get it deeply in your hearts. He goes on and explains a little bit. He says, I pray that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened or opened. So that you would know the hope to which he has called you, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What Christ has given us is far more valuable than anything the world can offer, and he's praying that Christians who already believe that would really believe it, so that we live it out. And lastly, he says, "I pray that you would know the immeasurable power toward us, his immeasurable power toward us, who believe according to the working." of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right, his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. There is nothing and no one more beautiful and more magnificent than Jesus. I pray that in your hearts you would see that. It's a work of God. Father, would you do that work in our midst? God, our worship team is going to come back up. We're going to sing songs as we close our worship service. I pray that the songs that we sing would not just be rote habits, but that we would pray from hearts that yearn to be enlightened, to see you more clearly for who you are. And Father God, I pray that you would reveal yourself in your word to the hearts of men and women. That whether we're here this morning looking for you for the first time, just trying, getting started on the process of trying to figure you out, whether we have been Christians and churchgoers for decades, but still struggling with our hearts bent to find our joy in lesser things, I pray, Spirit of God, that you would transform my heart. I pray that you would transform the heart of every man and woman to value you more than anything and everything else in our lives, that we would see you for who you really are and respond in a lifestyle of worship that flows naturally from that love. We pray that you would do this for our eternal good and for your matchless glory. In Christ's name, amen. As we sing this song, I just encourage you to just think about the beauty of where God dwells. It's a familiar song from a few years back, um, but the words are just amazing when you actually kind of dig into them a little bit and just appreciate what Christ did for us in bringing his dwelling place with us.